Case number 23-7031. Nextera Energy Global Holdings BV and Nextera Energy Spain Holdings BV versus Kingdom of Spain at balance. And case number 23-7032. Nine Rand Holding SARL versus Kingdom of Spain at balance. Ms. Harris for the balance Kingdom of Spain. Ms. Fay, Amicus Curiae for the European Commission. Ms. Fingal, Amicus Curiae for the United States of America. Mr. Dworsky for the Appalese Nextera Energy Global Holdings et al. and Nine Rand Holding SARL. Good morning, Ms. Harris. Good morning. Thank you, and may it please the court. Sarah Harris for the Kingdom of Spain. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act bars jurisdiction over Spain. First, the arbitration exception doesn't apply. That exception requires federal courts to confirm for themselves that an arbitration agreement exists. None exists here. EU law is paramount international law for EU members like Spain and EU nationals like the investors. EU law has always deprived EU members of any power to agree to resolve intra-EU disputes outside the EU system, including through arbitration. Second, the waiver exception doesn't apply. Foreign sovereigns don't implicitly waive their immunity just by ratifying arbitration treaties. Foreign sovereigns must also agree to arbitrate with particular parties. And third, the investor's position will upend settled international law and make the U.S. a haven for suits that investors' home countries forbid. The settled rule is that when the EU itself ratifies a treaty, as here, the EU controls intra-EU relations and the treaty doesn't supplant EU law. Ms. Harris, you mentioned that um, the EU and the member states ratified the treaty, and under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, we look not only to whether the nation state has, uh, under the arbitration exception, whether the nation state has agreed with the counterparty, but whether it's entered an agreement for the benefit of other parties. And here, I take it you don't dispute that the EU and Spain entered into an agreement for the benefit of the investors. Uh, we dispute that the relevant agreement, I guess, is the Energy Charter Treaty. So we think that the agreement here is a very specific one to the extent one exists at all. It would be between Spain and the individual investors. Well, what do we make of, I mean, we're interpreting the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, and for purposes of this question, the arbitration exception, is your position that the, the parties then who have to submit their disputes to arbitration have to be the same parties who entered the agreement for the benefit of others? Our position is there's only one arbitration agreement here because the Energy Charter Treaty itself seems to recognize that. And well, the the BG Group and the Chief Justice as well talk about sort of the relationship between two agreements, an agreement to settle disputes by arbitration that could be the treaty and the agreement creating a standing offer for investors. That's true, but I think the relevant precedents here would be the later Supreme Court decision in ZF Automotive, which discusses the type of investment treaty we have here. Um, as well as the Olin decision from the Second Circuit, which is sort of surveying this, um, and looking at the Energy Charter Treaty itself. So if you look at Article 26.5 in particular, I don't think you can construe sort of whatever background is going on with 
member states or not as the relevant arbitration agreement because Article 26.5 recognizes that to have the type of arbitration agreement required under both ICSID and the New York Convention, you need both consent given by the sovereign together with the written consent of the investor. And those two things together are what would satisfy the requirements under ICSID and the New York Convention. So why does the ECT not satisfy that test? Well, here we don't think that there is any, Spain does not have the power to agree to arbitrate with these investors from European countries. And so the missing ingredient here is the consent given by Spain. In the words of the European Court of Justice. But the ECT contains an unconditional agreement to arbitrate and Spain signed that. And we have held in at least two cases, Chevron and Stilix, that this type of agreement in a treaty married with a request for the arbitration consistent with what the treaty requires is sufficient to confer jurisdiction, at least on a prima facie level. So two issues with that. First of all, I think there's a preliminary question, which is what law governs whether Spain actually consented in the Energy Charter Treaty or not. And given that this is a dispute between an EU member and EU parties, the primary law governing their relationship is and always has been EU law. I guess the question is, why is not your position just a question of arbitrability as opposed to a question about jurisdictional facts? Because it seems that if we're just looking at jurisdictional facts, we have precedents addressing the ECT specifically in Stilix and a similar agreement in Chevron, which said that while you need to show is a treaty like this and a request to arbitrate from the investor and an arbitral award, we have that here. And if you have other arguments as to why this doesn't apply, why isn't that just a question of arbitrability, which is not about jurisdiction? Two reasons. And first of all, is this court's other precedents, which seem to clearly establish that whether a party has the power to agree to arbitrate is a question of whether an agreement formed, which is always for this court to decide de novo under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Which precedents are you principally relying on? The FAA precedents? No, I'm particularly relying in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities context on Belize and Mikula, but I also can talk about FAA cases because those also confirm the point. And just to walk through the Belize decision, if it were true that all you had to do is take a quick look at whether there is an investment treaty, whether there is a purported agreement, that case would be inexplicable because this court said, no, there has to be a further look at whether Belize's prime minister actually had the authority to agree to arbitrate. Can I ask you a question? It seems to me that you've conceded that the language in the ECT and the ECT itself does create an agreement to arbitrate with non-EU signatories to the ECT. Is that correct? That is correct. But we don't think that that means it's necessarily a question of arbitrability. No, well, I guess my question is, it's the exact same language that creates an agreement to arbitrate with non-EU countries. And there's no carve out in the ECT for intra-EU disputes. So it's the exact same language. It does create an agreement for non-EU countries, but it does not for intra-EU countries. It's the same language. So two points on that. Just first of all, if you're looking at the ECT itself, we disagree with that reading because, and I would first point you to Article 1.3 of the ECT, which expressly recognizes that economic integration organizations like the EU have primacy and control relations between EU members. And that provision says that 
sorry, what was the number of that again? 1-3, Article 1-3. Okay. Uh, and it says that an organization constituted by states to, it is, to which they have transferred competence, i.e. sovereignty, over certain matters, a number of which are governed by this treaty, including the authority to take decisions binding on them with respect to those matters. So is even- your, Is your position any different from what it would be had all the current members of the EU been members and the EU only on its own behalf had joined the ECT? I don't think so. The reason why the EU joins alongside members is usually there are issues of sort of shared competence in a treaty. And this one, again, is an express recognition that the EU is going to have primacy in certain regards. So it's so your not- answer to my question was that your position is the same as it would be if the individual member states had not joined, but only the ECT had joined. That only is- the EU. I'm sorry, sorry. only the EU. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, and the reason is when the EU joins a treaty, it's sort of market, it's demarcating with respect to individual members that there are matters within the exclusive competence of the European Union between the members. That is how 28 signatories unanimously understand the Energy Charter Treaty. That is how signatories across the world understand other treaties, like the World Trade Agreement in 1995. You mentioned the Belize case, but Belize case doesn't really get you out of the the questions I think that Judge Pan and I were asking, where you have a, a background treaty that, in, that under which the parties have agreed to, to arbitrate with respect to, to third parties, that was just a bilateral situation. You're talking about the competence of the of the change. Sure, and two responses on that. Mikula, I think, is very squarely on all fours, albeit an unpublished decision, but this court is saying in Mikula that it is a jurisdictional question whether the bar on intra-EU arbitration precluded Romania from entering into an agreement. And just more broadly, the idea that there is a distinction between bilateral treaties and an international agreement respectfully puts the cart before the horse. The question in the first instance is, did Spain, could Spain consent to take certain types of disputes outside the EU system did the parties to the Energy Charter Treaty understand that Spain and any other EU members were doing this? And any way you look at it, any under any sort of choice of law principle, either because you under, like you agree that when EU members and nationals are doing anything, the primary law governing their relationship is EU law, or because under the Energy Charter Treaty itself, the EU joining Article 1.3, the other principles in Article 26.6, recognize that EU law has a significant role to play and cannot allow. So shouldn't the EU and Spain just withdraw from the ECT if that's the case? Because they have signed an agreement that unconditionally agrees to arbitrate, and now they're saying we can't sign that agreement. The EU and Spain are still benefiting from the ECT. Their nationals can arbitrate against non-EU countries and have all of these benefits, and but they're saying that they don't have to sort of pay the price. And it seems to me that if they have a problem and there's a conflict between the ECT and EU law, then they need to resolve it themselves, not through coming to court like this, but just withdrawing from the ECT, which in no uncertain terms says is an unconditional agreement to arbitrate. But respectfully, that would contravene the way every signatory to the ECT that has ever weighed in on this issue understands the treaty. So it would be really strange to force signatories to withdraw. What do you mean? What, what do you think everybody's agreeing to? Because I think there's a dispute here as to whether 
you can arbitrate or not. There is certainly a dispute with the investors, but among signatories to the Energy Charter Treaty, 28 of them, and no one has said otherwise, everyone interprets that treaty to mean that Spain and other EU members never agreed to arbitrate in the EU system. And that's not a surprise given the backdrop of the treaty. The idea of even having intra-EU arbitration was unheard of until the mid-2000s. And whenever it cropped up, when it started cropping up, then the European Court of Justice immediately made clear in the Ireland decision. I want to go back to what you said before, because we have an amicus brief from international scholars. And they note that when the ECT was being negotiated and drafted, there was a suggestion that we have a disconnection clause, which is something that would carve out intra-EU disputes. And they chose not to do that. It was actually considered and not done. But the EU did carve out this Svalbard Treaty concerning an archipelago in the Arctic. But you never carved out intra-EU disputes. And the plain language of the ECT says that you're unconditionally agreeing to arbitrate these disputes, even among the, the European countries. And what you pointed to me before, Article 1.3, is just a definition section. It's not a disconnection clause. So a few responses. First of all, the EU offered the disconnection clause only if necessary, and it is superfluous because when the EU itself joins a treaty, the EU is making the treaty part of EU law. Now, Article 1.3, of course, is a definitional section, but it's still highly significant that the definition of the EU is as an organization to which states transferred competence and that the EU can take binding decisions with respect to matters within the treaty. So it is defining what the EU does, but it's saying that matters governed by the treaty include uh, matters governed by the treaty are subject to the EU's competence, including the power to take those decisions. Svalbard a lot into this definition. Well, I don't say that I'm looking at it right now. Respectfully, I don't have to just rely on Article 1.3. I am also relying on the significance of the EU joining a treaty. This is no different from the WTO agreement from 1995. There also was a disconnection clause proposed for that treaty. No one has understood the idea that you you propose a disconnection clause only if if relevant to mean that the EU somehow lacks the authority to, to make EU law on this. And on the Svalbard issue... I'm sorry, so are you saying that at the time that they drafted the ECT, everybody understood that it would not apply to intra-EU disputes? Yes, I am absolutely saying that. And not only am I saying that, that is evident from the signatories understanding of this treaty. But but ACMIA and Comstroy had not been decided yet. Yes, but ACMIA and Comstroy are applying settled principles that date to 1957 in the EU system. And so... It is not just the case that these were principles that were only discovered in 2018 or later. They are principles that have undergirded the entire EU system since its formation. Article 344 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the EU sets out in very plain language that member states who join the EU uh, no longer can refer disputes outside the European system if they are intra-EU disputes, that it is not allowed to do so. By what, two- if, what if uh, Switzerland and the United States had a treaty um, that predated the ECT and that incorporated sort of a, um, first options versus Kaplan, you know, your your idea about verifying the existence in advance of uh, of, of the uh, the validity of the arbitration agreement in advance. And uh, then they claimed that the ECT, even though they're signatories and ICSID, even though they're signatories, are subject to a different jurisdictional 
inquiry than the inquiry that one would ordinarily make in an exit case applying the ECT. That's also international law, is it not? So that would be international law. I think the question is, we're all in the same world, I think, of deciding which conflict principles apply. And we have three options that have been on the table from both sides, both of which under which we win. The first of which is that European law is the primary law governing relations between EU members. That's what everyone expects, investors, nationals, members alike. Second of all is the general principle that the specific governs the general. The EU treaties are themselves international law and are the most specific rules governing the capacity or power of EU members. You're saying that general law is more specific than the ECT that contains an explicit agreement and consent to arbitrate? How is that more specific than the ECT? Because the ECT is silent with respect to power to agree to things. And not only is the ECT, again, the ECT itself is internally conflicting, but does not have a rule saying, you know, this is the rule for capacity or power to agree. Does your position boil down to Spain signed the ECT, believing it could agree to this unconditional arbitration agreement, but they were wrong? They weren't able to sign that? Absolutely not. What we are saying is Spain and everyone else, again, all 28 signatories unanimously, who have weighed in unanimously saying this, that when an EU member, such as Spain or anyone else, signs the ECT, especially when you have the EU joining, what it is agreeing to is arbitrating with non-EU members. And so that is what it is agreeing to. Why wouldn't you just say that in the treaty then? Because it says the complete opposite in the plain words of the treaty. Respectfully, it says every signatory or every contracting party is agreeing to an unconditional arbitration. And you could say the same thing for the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and the WTO agreements. And the understanding at the time is that when the EU itself joins a treaty alongside members, there is no power to sort of say, oh, you know, we thought that this meant to supersede primary EU law that governs these relationships. It is clear to everyone. And again, I can't emphasize enough how unusual it would be for a court to sort of say that all signatories who have weighed in just got this totally wrong. They have been operating under this understanding. Your position relies on this sort of fiction that at the time they assumed they knew what Comstroy and ACMEA were going to decide. So respectfully, no, it doesn't rely on that fiction. It relies on the understanding that when the EU members formed the European Union in 1957 and agreed to a provision that put off limits any sort of dispute resolution that did not let the European Court of Justice have primary decision-making responsibility, that was not allowed. They gave up that power. And let me ask you a question about arbitration, because that's what we're focusing on here. When the EU signed the ETC, it knew that arbitration was different than litigation, so that parties could agree to arbitrate a matter where they would reach an agreement through the arbitration process that would not be appealable, would be bound by it, but they had a choice of going that route or litigating. So why do we read this treaty in a manner that assumes that the EU did not know what commercial arbitration was? Respectfully, I don't think it's a matter of reading the treaty as if the EU doesn't understand arbitration. Well, what did it mean by arbitration, commercial arbitration then? 
in the understanding that one of the reasons uh, post-World War II arbitration was so desirable was you could avoid the costs and delay of litigation. And surely the EU and its leaders were sophisticated enough to realize that. All I'm getting at is if it joins a treaty where it embraces the understanding of a term in a commercial field, how can it come back years later and say, oh, that's not what we meant. I'm just trying to understand where your argument goes. Yes, and our argument is that arbitration, commercial arbitration at least, among parties was not a matter that came through the court system or the legislative system on an individual basis. And what the EU agreed to and what the member states agreed to is arbitration vis-a-vis non-EU members. It sort of begs the question, who are they agreeing with? It's sort of as if states- Well, they are a sophisticated party. They know who they're agreeing with. They know they're agreeing with sovereigns who are part of the EU, not only an agreement as to countries that are not part of the EU. I mean, you're asking us to assume, and you may be correct, but I just want to be clear about it, that there was either a bit of naivety or ignorance on the part of the EU when it agreed by signing a treaty that enabled independent commercial arbitration. So respectfully, I think this is like the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, where it is not naivety or lack of sophistication going on. It is the understanding that when the EU itself joins a treaty, it is taking intra-EU matters off the table. So the agreement is absolutely between the EU members and people outside the EU, but there is no agreement to arbitrate things within EU members. So when Judge Pillard asked you what authorities you were relying on, you gave her two cases from our court, and you dismissed the Supreme Court BG authority. And of course, we can go through those cases and point out how they're factually different. That's why I thought Judge Pan's question about trying to understand what's going on when the EU signs a treaty that calls for commercial arbitration as an option. Yes, and what goes on, and again, this is the way that treaties have been understood, similar treaties too, and so it would really upend the way these treaties have been read by all the signatories to say suddenly this is not the case. But when the EU signs a treaty, it is fencing off intra-EU relations. And that's not just sort of me saying it, it's also the European Court of Justice repeatedly saying this, including- Why did all the individual members of the EU separately sign the treaty? If only the EU had signed it, your position would make a lot more sense. The reason is, and I think, again, Article 1.3 recognizes that some of the matters in the treaty are exclusive competence of the European Union, others at the time were not. And so that is the practice of the European Union. If there are sort of shared matters, the EU signs and also the individual members. But the key thing is the EU signing and recognizing that with respect to external matters, that is what happened. And that- You talk about throughout your briefing and your argument that 
the implications of uh, Comstroy and Achmea are that Spain lacks the capacity. But that is not how those decisions read. Um, Comstroy talks about, as a matter of EU law, the ECT's arbitration provision has to be interpreted as not being applicable to disputes between a member state and an investor of another member state. It goes more to whether Spain did enter an agreement as opposed to whether it could. And so is there anything you can point me to in those decisions, the EU Court of Justice decisions, that point to this capacity argument? Yes. Um, first of all, when Comstree says that the ECT arbitration provision cannot apply to intra-EU arbitration, it is saying that that lacks force between EU members. It's not just sort of, it doesn't apply means doesn't exist. And I think the European Foods decision from the European Court of Justice makes this super clear. It's going over those cases and saying that the consent, quote, lacks force, which is sort of the typical language you would expect if it was a lack of power, lack of authority argument of the type this court has. It can be that it's invalid, which is, you know, and I, I understand and appreciate why you're using the capacity argument, because I think that's your strongest footing in a very tough <laughs> battle against ICSID. And we haven't even talked about the full faith and credit uh, aspect of, of ICSID. But so the, the logic underlying the position is that an international tribunal or, or an arbitral tribunal can't interpret EU law because it's not part of the EU judicial system. But fundamentally, I don't understand what the threat is to the EU judicial system and the EU court's primacy in a kind of a Murray versus Madison sense as interpreters of EU law because arbitration awards are not precedential. So you end up with, I mean, is your position that parties, private parties can't settle energy disputes within the EU or private and state parties can't settle disputes based on a misapprehension of EU law? Our position is what the European Court of Justice said in Comstroy and in previous cases, and why this is part of one of the foundational treaties on the EU, which is that the EU members and their nationals really are getting together, and so that the European Court of Justice can actually develop this body of law, dispute resolution mechanisms that are outside of that, that do not respect the primacy of EU law, undermine the system that is being built in the EU. They leave, even when it's an arbitral decision where you sort of say it's just an award, you can decide whether or not to enforce it. Those are extremely important interpretive questions of treaties that the members of the EU agreed, at least in matters among them, would be subject to the European Court of Justice. And that's what about settlement? Settlement uh, with respect to, you'd have to, I suppose, have a dispute brought Spain, somewhere in the Spain outset. Spain and Nine Run and Next Era decide to settle this case. And they have ideas in their own minds about EU law and what it means. And they just settle and they don't publish anything. They talk among themselves. They are interpreting EU law. They're not, it, it sounds like your position is requiring everybody to litigate, which is, as, as Judge Rogers was asking, like, there are some benefits <laughs> to having some disputes arbitrated. So you're saying, no, they cannot be arbitrated, period? And I'm saying within EU members, it's not just me saying that. That is the European Court of Justice's position, long-standing position from 2006, when it said the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is also a multilateral treaty, 
You have two EU members who try to invoke the arbitration provision there. The Court of Justice says, no, that is taking disputes outside the system. It is a fundamental affront. Does this mean that nobody can arbitrate within the EU? Because what about private parties? So Comstory, paragraph 65, says that the limits of this are respect to EU member and EU nationals. It's not speaking to private arbitration. It's the same principle. The whole idea about arbitration is parties are agreeing to it, consenting to let this arbitrator just decide this case. And it saves time, like as Judge Rogers said, where we're not litigating. And we're just going to abide by this. It's an agreement among the parties. And it has no precedential value. It has no precedential effect. So it doesn't affect the primacy of EU law. It doesn't affect the EU's interest in making sure the law is consistent. And if it does, then why is that different from private arbitration that interprets EU law? Respectfully, the European Court of Justice truly has said in many, many opinions that even arbitration, if it involves an EU member and an investor or another EU member, really does offend the system. I understand that. My question is why? Yes. And the why is because as part of forming the EU to develop a coherent body of law and to ensure that you... Non-precedential. So how is this part of developing a coherent body of law? It's taking a dispute that should be developed by the European Court of Justice out of the European Court of Justice. You're saying they have to litigate. We are saying between EU members that that is what people agree to. And it does not... The commissary decision, the European Court of Justice has not... So that means any EU member cannot arbitrate. And between each other, that is... Ever. So yes, that is... You cannot do that because it's not an arbitral... Unless the arbitral tribunal were allowed to have de novo review by the European Court of Justice, this is what that court held. So you also say that no tribunal outside the EU can decide an issue of EU law. But you're also asking us to apply EU law, right? So under your reading of ACMEA, it violates EU law for us to decide the case in your favor. I'm not really following how that... It doesn't run afoul of the very principle on which your case rests. No, our argument is that because EU law governs, you should apply what the European Court of Justice has said and respect that it has interpreted EU law as governing and has interpreted EU law clearly. We obviously understand... You just said you want us to apply EU law. Yes. And so the argument is not courts can never resolve a dispute involving EU law in any context. The alternative would be what Spain is supposed to argue, like EU law never applies. Where Spain is arguing, there's no jurisdiction over Spain under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act in the first instance. In order to so hold, we would have to apply EU law. And ACMEA is saying an international arbitration tribunal can't even apply, let alone interpret EU law, but you're asking us to apply it. So what we're saying is there are contexts in which obviously EU law has to be applied. This is one of them. And that in order to avoid the issues with letting parties circumvent their obligations here, there's no other choice. I mean, Spain can't sort of get up here and say, what, like no EU law applies? The other choice is full faith and credit. I mean, there's no question that Spain is a member of the ICSID and that this case was arbitrated under ICSID and that we as a U.S. court are bound to give that award full faith and credit. And so that award has done its job 
in deciding what you claim is a threshold jurisdictional question that would otherwise be for us. So we decide that, but we're bound separately by the ICSID treaty, ICSID convention to, to give full time faith and credit. So why is our job not done? Because that respectfully, that would both create a circuit split and do violence to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which is the only source of subject matter jurisdiction. 1650A, which is the full faith and credit provision for ICSID, is not a source of subject matter jurisdiction. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act requires federal courts to assure themselves that they have jurisdiction. And just sort of outsourcing the jurisdictional determination to arbitrators does not do that job and would be flatly contrary to the way this court has actually done an inquiry into whether questions are arbitrability or existence of the arbitration agreement. Not only- What's your circuit split? The circuit split is with the Second Circuit. The mobile serial decision very clearly holds that you can't just use the New York Convention or ICSID as if they're sort of separate bodies of law. And um, Amirata Hess from the Supreme Court also says the only source of jurisdiction over foreign sovereigns is the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. You can't just look to the uh, ICSID Convention. You, you can't look to something else. the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. But what In conjunction you, with the ECT. And mobile I, I was under the, the waiver way. exception, not the arbitration. But exception. the principles it's applying are the starting point for the inquiry is that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act does not sort of allow you to look to other treaty implementing provisions as if they supply subject matter jurisdiction. This court still must. Well, we looked at acts and decisions. I mean, we look to the existence of an agreement to arbitrate. We look to whether there's an award. I mean, those are facts in the world that we have to honor and credit in order to make our own immunity decision under the FSIA, don't we? I think it would be contrary to also this court's decision in Belize and even Chevron and Stilix to sort of say, you're no longer going to take a look at whether the question is one of formation or arbitrability. And if it is one of formation, you're no longer going to look for yourselves whether in Belize case, for instance, the prime minister had the power to agree to arbitrage. Those cases don't make any sense under the other side's view that you're just sort of checking boxes <laughs> and looking if there's an agreement to arbitrate because all of those cases also involve delegation. Clauses. Weren't those cases New York Convention cases, not ICSID cases? I mean, we're in a very different situation, I think, under ICSID because of the full faith or credit. We really, it's an extremely powerful treaty in terms of the the credit we have to give to the arbitration. Well, two responses. First of all, the Mikula decision, obviously not precedential, but it did involve ICSID and this court and Judge Mehta and the district court did a very fulsome analysis. It would be flatly incompatible with the idea that the ICSID convention meant you just sort of drop pencils and say that the issue is delegated, there's an award, you're all done. Um, and with respect to ICSID, again, relying on the idea that you give an award full faith or credit still puts the cart before the horse, because that is what happens if there actually is jurisdiction under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act to begin with. But otherwise, you'd have circumstances, potential circumstances, in which you are not actually ascertaining for yourselves whether an arbitration agreement exists. You're sort of rubber stamping whatever an arbitral tribunal might or might not have said on this. And again, that is contrary to both bedrock principles of really bedrock principles of arbitration everywhere. I would point you to the China Mid-Metals decision that we cited from the Third Circuit, because that decision canvases both Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, international practice, domestic or foreign or federal arbitration act practice. And I think just refutes the idea that ICSID is somehow a sort of super powered convention 
that does that allows you to bypass the jurisdictional inquiry that applied. If that's what I'd like the to ask a question about the injunction, if I may. Um, there's a lot of talk about comedy with respect to this injunction. And isn't it Spain who acted with a lack of comedy by bringing a suit in another country just to stop the proceedings in um, the U.S. courts? Absolutely not. Spain's only choice in order to enforce its obligations under EU law and to cease circumvention of those obligations was to try to bring suits in the investors' home countries, which is where you would expect litigation to be brought. And comedy interests that this court talked about in Laker Airways are about the singular affront that would happen from subjecting a foreign sovereign to... I think comedy is a little bit broader. It's about respecting proceedings in foreign courts. And I think there is definitely a very strong interest when there's a sovereign involved. I, I accept that. But it just seems to me that that's the entire goal and purpose of the suit brought by Spain um, as the Netherlands and Luxembourg was to stop the, the U.S. proceedings. That seems to be a lack of comedy on Spain's part. Spain is respecting, I mean, again, I don't, I'm not sure what Spain was supposed to do in order to enforce its EU law obligations in order to say that well, there is. I guess what Spain could have done is allow this proceeding to go forth while trying to confirm whether or not they have to pay under in the EU courts and then ask for a stay of these proceedings while that's being decided. It just seems that trying to just stop these proceedings. It's very much like Laker Airways, except I do understand that the, the party is a sovereign and not a private company. But the whole purpose of it was to stop the U.S. Um, suit for confirmation of the award. And I think if you bought that view, anti-suit injunctions against foreign sovereigns would suddenly become commonplace in U.S. courts because you would be saying, you, I guess would be asking only, is there some attempt by a foreign sovereign to stop litigation in the United States. And if that were the test, again, it would not be the case that across the world, foreign sovereigns would virtually, it would be unheard well, of to enjoin foreign it sovereigns. It seems to me that there are cases not like this one where there are just parallel proceedings going on in foreign courts and U.S. courts. And then it's kind of trying to get to the end and who's going to get there first and then assert race judicata or whatever. But this is a different kind of case, which is it's more like Laker Airways, where the whole purpose of the litigation in Luxembourg and in the Netherlands was to stop this litigation. And it seems to me that if all people subject, all sovereigns subject to ICSID could go and just try to stop investors from trying to apply ICSID, ICSID would just collapse. If they could sue in these national courts to stop ICSID proceedings, ICSID would collapse. And the whole purpose of ICSID is to prevent investors from having to go to these national courts to seek justice, because the idea of it is they should be entitled to a neutral arbiter through this international arbitration system and not be subject to any um, any courts, national courts. And I respectfully disagree on two fronts. First of all, that Laker Airways is in any way resembling this case. Uh, in that case, the whole point was to deprive of any form for litigating antitrust claims. Again, the whole point of Spain's litigation is that these claims only properly belong in the investors' home states or within the European Union. So that is the Finish your question. I want to. Sorry. That is the point of what Spain was doing. And second of all, the idea that ICSID is going to collapse if investors cannot bring these suits or there's some sort of uh, there, there's some sort of undermining seems defied by practice in which, again, the European Court of Justice is holding that there is no arbitration among intra-EU members under ICSID in the European Food Decision and the collateral consequences of requiring EU members to say 
and to object to such arbitrations and to claw back such awards, Ixon is not collapsing because people understand and the signatories understand that this is just not something that EU members agree to. Why then didn't Spain go into the uh, Dutch or the Luxembourgish courts to stop the arbitration before it concluded? You would, it seems to me you'd be in a better position. Uh, Spain at that point was resist, attempting to you know, resist the arbitration every way it could. I, I don't know the details of when it would have been, whether it would have been jurisdictionally premature to do so. But it's sort of just the question of what Spain should have done as a litigant, I think, underscores why an anti-suit injunction is so strange. You're sort of second guessing what a foreign sovereign can or cannot do in litigation context. As the United States points out, there's a very strong reciprocal interest in not having foreign sovereigns also second guess what the United States is doing in foreign courts. Uh, And again, that is why no circuit court ever has greenlit this kind of injunction and why it would be so extraordinary here. And even under the injunction that that Judge Chuckin put in place, it doesn't prevent Spain from seeking monetary relief from through the Dutch and Luxembourgish courts to effectively claw back to recoup whatever uh, these investors managed to win in the United States. So why doesn't that really lower the temperature, lower the stakes on these proceedings, because the EU, you know, as as unified as as you describe it, um, will in the end come to Spain's rescue. Well, respectfully, the idea that Spain's litigation choices are supposed to be sort of dictated by others, especially in other countries' courts, is sort of like doubling the offense. It's sort of saying, well, I mean, Spain did join some treaties. That's why it's choices are being dictated. And again, we, you know, we can go through this. Again, Spain's position is that the treaties it agreed to did not involve this type of consent. And Spain's position is consistent with the idea that EU law is primary, is imposing obligations on Spain to resist this sort of circumvention of the EU system. And that if courts... Isn't Spain just trying to get out of its commitments? I mean, it owes more than $1.3 billion for 16 unpaid investor state awards. It just doesn't want to pay. Respectfully, they have got the benefits of all this investment, and now they don't want to hold up their end of the bargain by going to arbitration, which they agreed to in the ECT. So two responses. One, no, Spain is not trying to get out of something it agreed to. Spain's position throughout has been it didn't agree to this. And second of all, I don't think it's just a sort of opportunistic view of the energy but charter. Let's take a step back. Do you think these investors would have necessarily invested all this money in Spain without the assurance that if something like this were to happen and Spain wanted to get out of it, they wouldn't have a neutral arbiter to decide this dispute? I'm glad you raised what the investors should have understood at the time they invested and at the time they purported to form these agreements in 2011 and 2014 and 15, because I think the first and foremost thing that European investors in the EU member states understand is that EU law is going to be the paramount law governing the relationship. And the second thing they would understand at the time of these things is that intra-EU arbitration at the time was absolutely unheard of. So they can't rely on the words of the ECT? Well, I think what they can rely on is the text of the ECT and going back to it that the EU joined it, which at the time... Correct. And the text of the ECT says there's an unconditional agreement and consent to arbitrate with an investor that asks for it. And what... Or under the UNSA trial. And again, what people would understand from certainly from 2006 onward from the Ireland decision is that when you have such an international agreement, the EU joins it, even if you have an arbitration provision that is exactly like the ECTs, you do not have consent to enter EU arbitration. Just one other thing with respect to what... Can I just clarify your position? 
Your position then is that there is no arbitration in the EU in the sense that neither its highest judicial authority could so find, nor its highest legislative body could so provide? There's no intra-EU arbitration in the sense between an EU member and another EU member or EU member or nationals. And that is, again, based on what the European Court of Justice has said, that there is just no power to agree to that sort of thing. And neither its highest judicial authority nor its highest legislative authority could provide for such arbitration. In other words, the EU is a closed. I don't know what to call it, a closed governmental entity. So the only way it could be provided for would be if you had arbitration and then it was reviewable de novo by the European Court of Justice. Well, that's not arbitration. I mean, we've discussed what is arbitration and why parties have sought arbitration, particularly commercial parties. So your position is that there can be no arbitration among commercial parties who are members of the EU, period, that the EU's highest court and the EU's highest legislature, neither could provide that power to a member of the EU. So I think my position, just thinking about where it comes from, is Article 344 of the treaty. Where does it go? That's what I'm trying to understand. All right. And what I hear you saying is there is none and there can be none. And I want to be clear if you have some qualifications on that. So I haven't heard any so far. The qualifications, I think, are best expressed in paragraph 65 of the Comstry decision. The limitations are between EU member, so country, country, or country, EU member, and EU national. That is the full limits of what the European Court of Justice has said on this. And the reason is, again... That's not my question, counsel, and you're sharp enough to know it. With respect, Judge Rogers, that is the limit that we know. And the other limit is that to the extent there is an attempt... If you say arbitration is allowed in the home countries, you're domesticating it, and the European Court of Justice can review that, that would also satisfy the limitation. But the limitation just is what it is and always has been since 1957, which is... And it never changes your argument to us today. You could change it through treaty amendment, but that is not what has happened with the treaties on the functioning of the European Union. How would that treaty be amended? The members of the European Union would get together, which they have done with the treaty on the functioning of the EU. What would the treaty say? The treaty would say that you no longer have to turn to the European Court of Justice. It no longer has primacy. That's one way of doing it. Who has authority to do that under your argument? Well, it's a treaty, so you would have to have the treaty signatories do it. Because the understanding of the treaty... The EU couldn't sign that treaty. The EU, it would be a matter about what the EU can or cannot do. So the EU members would be making the treaty, which is what they do. Well, let me say, your argument, so far as I can see it, cuts off members of the EU in a way that you say everybody understood, but I certainly never understood the EU's position to be what you're saying today. And the cases 
that have been cited to us, as well as our own authorities, haven't said that in those terms. And as you know, courts are very good as our lawyers of distinguishing cases. Uh, but I think it's an astounding argument we're hearing today. And maybe the uh, European Commission will confirm it, but in any event. I mean, respectfully, the European Union is an innovation where sovereigns, see, where sovereigns gave the European Union certain powers. And that decision has consequences and has always had consequences. And that is why the signatories to the Energy Charter Treaty. But we're trying to distinguish it. Anyway, I will belabor this. Thank you, Council. Did you reserve time for rebuttal? Yes, Judge Hillary. <laughs> I reserve three minutes. As you know, our practice is to give you a, a time limit, and then we uh, promptly <laughs> seem to disregard it with our active questioning. So you will have an opportunity for Thank you, a rebuttal. And we will next hear from the European Commission. And that's, is it Ms. Pei? Yes, Ms. Pei. Good morning. May it please the court. Sally Pay for the European Commission. I'm also pleased to introduce Lorna Armati, Petrona Mechkova, and Paul John Lowenthal from the Commission's Legal Service, who have traveled from Brussels to observe argument today. The investor's position is extraordinary on every level. It ignores the EU treaties, which are the foundational instruments of the EU legal order. It disregards the decisions of the EU's highest court about an issue that's of fundamental importance to the EU structure. And it seeks to restrain an EU member state from pursuing litigation in EU courts on questions of EU law. Can this is all in certain. Um, kind of following up on Judge Pillard's question um, uh, to Ms. Harris, we're trying to understand the EU's interest here because there is this declaration in, in your brief that this case implicates the EU's authority and primacy and all these things, but given that arbitral awards are non-precedential, how is that a threat to, I guess, the, the supremacy of, of the EU courts? So I think as Ms. Harris was discussing toward the end of the argument, the question really goes back to two key provisions of the EU treaties, which are Articles 344 and Article 267. Under Article 344, um, the EU member states agreed that they would never submit questions of EU law to, for resolution outside the EU judicial system. And Article 267 is the other side of that same coin. It provides that questions of EU law must be ventilated through the EU system um, and so, so that they can be referred. Even if it's non-precedential? Because if it's non-precedential, it doesn't affect your case law. It, does, it's not, it doesn't affect anything. It's just two parties agreeing on something. That's what arbitration is, and it's just more efficient. So with respect to, to questions of the Energy Charter Treaty, the Energy Charter Treaty is EU law as between member states. I so guess whenever... my question is more basic than that, which is I don't understand why the EU has an interest in not letting people arbitrate. So, so the interest really is, is in ensuring that questions of EU law are developed and ventilated within the, within the European But there's Union. no developing or ventilating happening if it's non-precedential, is there? Well, it, it, it is to the extent that EU members and EU nationals should not be submitting questions outside the EU system. For them to be able to go outside the EU, EU system to resolve disputes that really are, are internal to the EU and should have been governed by EU law in the first place is so quite detrimental. So what about arbitrations between EU and non-EU 
signatories to the ECT that involve EU law. You say that an arbitral panel can decide those. So in such a case, the questions being presented in that kind of arbitration would not necessarily raise questions of EU law in the same way as a dispute between an EU member state and an EU national energy charter treaty. So I think there could be situations conceivably where if the arbitral tribunal were being asked actually to resolve a legal question of EU law, it's conceivable that the same questions of primacy would arise. I would note that the Court of Justice has not reached this particular question. It's left open. Comstroy seems to suggest that there is a distinction here where there's a, if there were a case involving a third country investor. It's sort of putting the law aside though. I'm just trying to understand where would you draw this line where you have decided this principle that, you know, EU court should decide EU law. And we have private parties settling based on their understanding of EU law. We have private parties arbitrating based on an arbitrator's interpretation of EU law. We have EU members arbitrating with non-EU people deciding questions of EU law. All of these things are happening and that doesn't seem to be disrupting the primacy of EU law because it's non-precedential. So with respect to the different scenarios in which that you've referred to, with respect to purely private disputes that might involve questions of EU law as a matter of fact, for example, the Court of Justice, I think, has recognized that those do not raise the same kinds of concerns as you have in Acmea and Comstroy. And that's partly because those arbitrations are not based on an agreement by a member state, a treaty agreement, to take these disputes outside the EU legal system. So I think there's something fundamentally different between two commercial parties agreeing. Are you saying it's not about the actual substance of the EU law that's being interpreted? It's about the act of agreeing by the members? That's at least the line that the Court of Justice has drawn so far. It has carved out commercial arbitration. And the reason why... But the members have signed ICSID and UNCTRAL and private parties benefit from that. I'm not sure that I'm seeing your distinction. You said that purely private settlements or arbitrations aren't threats because they're not based on a treaty agreement by EU members to take the cases outside. But ICSID is a treaty agreement to take the cases outside the EU court system. So if I might just back up a little bit and finish the answer that I was going to give. I'm sorry about that. So first of all, the question about commercial... The idea is that there are two private parties that have agreed between themselves. The Court of Justice has said that that does not raise the same issues and for the reason that it's not through a treaty agreement between EU member states. In addition, those kinds of disputes are subject to review in EU courts to the extent that there may be set-aside proceedings at the end of the arbitration. Those questions of EU law can still be ventilated within the EU system. Now, turning to the question about ICSID and arbitration agreements that member states have signed, as Ms. Harris was explaining, here Spain did not have the capacity to enter into an agreement to arbitrate disputes between itself and members of another EU member state. But it has signed ICSID, so a Spanish private entity and a Dutch private entity could... Spain could enter an agreement that allows those private parties to take their dispute outside. And that's an action by Spain. 
So if, if it were, if it were going to be in a dispute between a Spanish private party and a Dutch private party, you would not need an investment treaty to do that. Um, that would be a purely, uh, it, that would be an agreement just between parties. But the parties want to, uh, it sits only with governments. Correct. How about, uh, Uncitral, same? Uncitral, I think that that would govern, um, so Uncitral governs commercial arbitrations as well. So you could have a, a private arbitration agreement between, between two parties, but Uncitral is, uh, yeah, again, that 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 would be set of rules. Are, the governments are signatories. Correct. I thought you were. I thought you were making a point that the governments couldn't even purport to be signatories to something that affords arbitration to to bilateral private party disputes. So that wasn't your point. So I think my point was that the government there would be no need for a, a sovereign state to enter into such an agreement to to that that would govern purely commercial arbitrations between private parties. But they have. No? Uh, so so the with respect to the to conventions like the ICSID convention um, and the New York convention, those are, are those are not in themselves arbitration agreements. They govern the enforceability and and the this um, uh, it's a framework for arbitration, but the the substantive agreement to arbitrate, even if you're talking about um, the context of in, investor state arbitration. That's why you need recourse to something like the Energy Charter Treaty or a bilateral investment agreement. Um, you don't, you cannot, unfortunately, just simply look to the ICSID convention and say that that is endorsing arbitration or on, on, or on such all. So I understand I'm your not position. Clear that I understand your point about there's no need for a sovereign state, which is a member of the EU to enter an agreement with a private commercial corporation located in another sovereign state. But wasn't what happened here an example of why it was necessary? I mean, in order to attract investors, the sovereign state was offering tax benefits so with respect private to parties can't do that and par private parties may not be willing to enter a contract that's that financially beneficial so i i um, agree with your point judge rogers that that in many cases um, investment treaties serve as as an important reason for investors to, to invest in 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 foreign countries the the point with respect to um, the energy charter treaty and intra-eu investment agreements is that these kinds of agreements never were designed to provide benefits that would apply within the EU. Investment protection within the EU is governed by EU law and EU regulations, um, and those are the remedies that EU investors um, should have availed themselves of if they if they. So, so I understand that that's your position, and that could be a question of arbitrability versus whether or not there was an agreement. But I want to put that aside for a moment and just say that the EU did sign the ECT, which has language that says there's unconditional consent to arbitrate. Spain signed it too. And there's no disconnection clause that carves out anything for intra-EU um, disputes. So why can't the EU and Spain just be held to what they signed in the ECT? And if you want to litigate these other issues, the question of arbitrability, they got to litigate these issues before the ICSID Tribunal. So, first of all, with respect to the disconnection clause, um, a disconnection clause would have been superfluous here. 
Member states are already under obligations to accord primacy to EU law. So the purpose of a disconnection clause in any treaty would be only to inform non-EU parties um, of the existence of, of the EU and the existence of, of EU obligations that govern member states that are that are signing on to this. I'm just looking at the plain language of the ECT, and that seems to be contrary to what you're saying. I know that that's your legal position, which can be litigated, but the <laughs> e, the EU and Spain signed the ECT, which has very plain language about arbitration. I know your position. The question is, who do you get to argue that before? If it's a question of arbitrability, it's before the arbitral panel. And I believe you intervened and did argue this position before the arbitral panel, and it was rejected. But in any event, I don't see why the ECT language doesn't control here. And if there's a problem with it, the EU and Spain should withdraw from the ECT. So respectfully, Your Honor, I will um, first address the point about uh, about whether this court can can look at this. And it's it's not a question of arbitrability. It's a question of the formation of the agreement. Um, and, and the court absolutely has the, the ability and obligation to review this question de novo. On the question of the language of the Energy Charter Treaty, um, I, I, I suppose you're referring to the, the paragraph, um, Article 26, paragraph 3A, which contains the language about unconditional consent. Yes. Um, I would also point you to uh, Article 26, uh, 26.1, which um, delineates the kinds of disputes that are being contemplated for submission to arbitration. It says disputes between a contracting party and an investor of another contracting party relating to an investment of the latter in the area of the former, which concern an alleged breach, will be settled amicably. And then that's that's the, the kind of dispute that would be submitted for resolution. Now, I, I would note that contracting party here is a defined term. So you go back to the definition section. Um, Article 1.2 provides that a contracting party may include a regional economic integration organization. Um, and it's, it's understood that the regional economic integration organization, the paradigm example of that is the EU. And then you look to Article 1.3. Which I, I understand this is quite a complicated. It is. Yes, it's very convoluted. And right, but but section I, three is very straightforward. Unconditional yes. consent. And what about wait, wait, but five? continue. I want to hear the rest of the example. You say then you go to Article one three. One three is about the regional economic integration organization, um, and th this is the provision that Ms. Harris was discussing with you earlier, which explains that a regional economic integration organization is an entity constituted by states, um, and to, to over which. Uh, to which they have transferred competence over certain matters, a number of which are governed by this treaty, including the authority to take decisions binding on them in respect of those matters. And so in an intra-EU situation, um, the relevant contracting party um, for purposes of Article 26.1 is the European Union. And so there's no, you don't have the requisite diversity um, between the investor of a contracting party and the investor of another contracting party in an intra-EU situation. So that's that's the um, that's the, the textual argument um, for why this can, particular. Can you address subsection five, which says the consent given in paragraph three, together with the written consent of the investor given pursuant to paragraph four, shall be considered to satisfy the requirement for written consent of the parties to a dispute, and or an agreement in writing for purposes of Article two of the um, New York Convention. It, there's also a provision that says this is an agreement to arbitrate. So. Paragraph five is, is the paragraph that provides that you need both consent in paragraph three and written consent by the investor to create an arbitration agreement for purposes of these, um, for purposes of the UN Convention and, and the UNCTRAL rules and the exit Convention. 
the reference to the consent in paragraph three then refers you back to dispute, which is governed by 26-1. That defines the universe of disputes that are being contemplated could be submitted to arbitration. And again, you need diversity between the contracting party and the investor of the other contracting party. In an intra-EU situation, there is no diversity because the contracting party is the EU, as recognized by the inclusion of the Regional Economic Integration Organization clause. You mentioned in your brief that the European Commission is considering whether to permit Spain to pay these exit awards. I wonder if you have any update on any progress in that. So that's correct. The Commission's deliberations on this are still ongoing. Spain has notified all of these awards to the Commission, and unless and until the Commission renders its decision, Spain is not permitted to pay them under EU law. And I had also asked Ms. Harris this, but what's your position on whether this court is prohibited by Achmea and Comstroy from applying EU law, or why we're not in our FSIA determination? So with respect to your FSIA determination, the question, of course, is whether an arbitration agreement exists. And the Court of Justice has spoken clearly on this. You are not being asked to do anything other than to take notice of what the Court of Justice has said and to apply that as a question of fact in determining whether the agreement exists as a question of jurisdictional fact for purposes of the FSIA. Although, for example, the EU has not characterized its ruling in terms of the capacity of Spain. So we would have to be doing something interpretive, not just accepting some kind of legal fact and applying it. But that's not in violation of those very decisions? No, I think, Your Honor, I think that to understand why this is a question of capacity, I think the reason why the Court of Justice did not refer to it in those particular terms is because this really is a question that is sort of inherent to how the Court of Justice conceives of the EU treaties. It's useful to remember that when EU member states join the Union, they are transferring certain parts of their sovereignty to the Union. Member states assume obligations and they agree that the EU treaties will have primacy over their national law and other international agreements. And that brings you back to Articles 344 and 267. Those are very much deeply ingrained. And as a matter of the way that the EU is structured, when EU member states join the Union, they essentially give up their ability to agree to anything that would be contrary to the EU treaties. So it is very much a question of power and capacity, even though the Court of Justice did not use that particular term of art. Judge Rogers, did you have any other questions? Thank you. Thank you. And now we'll hear for the United States as amicus, Karen Swingle from the Department of Justice. Thank you, Your Honors, and thank you for the Court's invitation to be heard on the issues presented. I'd like to make just three basic points. First is that in determining whether a court has jurisdiction over a foreign state under the FSIA's arbitration exception, the court must make an independent determination regarding the existence of an arbitration agreement. I think that is a legal principle that is clear from this Court's cases, which treat the existence of the 
existence of the arbitration agreement is a jurisdictional fact that must be established. In Belize, for example, the court evaluated whether the prime minister lacked authority to enter into the arbitration agreement. In Ecuador, the court held that a district court erred when it failed to make that determination as part of its jurisdictional analysis. And in Mecula, the court reviewed whether Romania's ascension to the European Union nullified its agreement to arbitrate. Um, Your Honor asked Judge Pillard about whether any of those rules applied ICSID rules in Mecula. Of course, that was ICSID arbitration. But I would note that Belize also involved arbitration under rules that gave the arbitral tribunal authority to conclusively decide its own jurisdiction and to conclusively decide the existence and validity of the arbitration agreement. And yet this court nevertheless independently uh, reviewed that. But you do acknowledge there's a difference between deciding if there's an agreement and whether it's a question of arbitrability, because that seems to be. We do, Your Honor, and we understand that to be the distinction the court drew in Stilex. And I think that same distinction flows from the the arbitration cases that the court looks to. In district number one, for example, um, the court recognized that the question of formation was one that could not be delegated to the arbitrator to decide and was necessarily for the court. So it doesn't seem like your position would be inconsistent with the view that there is an agreement based on the ECT and um, the I guess what we said in Chevron Stilex, we have this treaty, we have um, an award, you know, we, we have an agreement by the investor under the terms of the treaty to arbitrate. Your position is not inconsistent with that. The, the agreement is the ECT. We do not take a position on whether, in fact, there is a valid agreement here. I do want to take issue under with... Under the ECT? Yes, but I, I do want to take issue with one point. Uh, In our understanding, the ECT is not itself an agreement to arbitrate. And I think just an example will establish why that's so. For example, I do not think a foreign state that is a party to to the ECT could invoke arbitration against the wishes of an investor. We understand the ECT to be a standing offer to arbitrate. Correct. It it would be in combination with the acceptance by the investor and then the arbitration award under our case law. And do you have a position on whether the ECT is an agreement for the benefit, an agreement to resolve issues by arbitration for the benefit of others? So, again, we don't understand the ECT itself to be an agreement to arbitrate. And I, I, I'm asking the specific question, though, of the, the the FSIA has its own language. Yes, and I, I want to look to that. It's, again, that is that that description of which may arise to enforce an agreement made by the foreign state with or be for the benefit of a private party to arbitrate. And, again, I, I think that is, is envisioning an arbitration agreement. I think that is the jurisdictional why fact. Why isn't it an agreement among the contracting parties? To arbitrate. Because I think in some instances you can have third party enforcement of an arbitration agreement. A third party beneficiary of the arbitration agreement might. And why isn't that what we have here? So, again, we're not taking a position on the the bottom line of whether there is, in fact, an agreement to arbitrate here. So could I just clarify one thing in my own mind? Uh, When the United States, in its first point, (laughs) 
that at least as to the FSIA, uh, the district court faced with an enforcement petition must make an independent determination uh, that there is an arbitration agreement. By that, I assume that the United States is saying it's not enough for the district court to defer to an EU arbitrator's conclusion? That is absolutely correct, Your Honor. We think the court needs to make its own independent determination. Does that mean in the nature of a summary judgment proceeding, potentially, or maybe a trial? If there are disputed jurisdictional facts, potentially, yes. You know, I think generally it would be our view that this would likely be legal issues to be decided. Yes, I understand, but I just want to understand where we're going here, potentially. Depending on the evidence, it may not be possible to resolve this matter simply on a procedural Rule 56. And that's possible, Your Honor, as is typically the case in FSIA cases, if there are disputed questions of fact that are necessary to be resolved to address the question of whether a particular exception to foreign sovereign immunity applies. So do you know, and there's no reason you should necessarily, whether or not throughout the world when a party has an award and seeks its enforcement, there are independent determinations as to whether or not that party is properly before the court, and there is no deference as to whether or not the agreement on which it is seeking exists? So I do not know, Your Honor, but I think that is unsurprising. And I would just, to return to the ICSID Convention, I think it's clear that the ICSID Convention sets out a framework for arbitration, but it is not an agreement among states to waive their sovereign immunity. That's clear from the convention itself, which references sovereign immunity only to make explicit that it is not abrogated by the convention. And it's clear from Article 54, which provides that a state party with a federal constitutional structure like ours agrees to enforce an arbitration agreement as if it were a final judgment of the courts of a constituent state. So under U.S. law, that requires that there be a basis for subject matter jurisdiction under the FSIA. And I would note that the convention was implemented domestically through 22 U.S.C. 1605A, which doesn't itself abrogate sovereign immunity and doesn't provide an independent basis for jurisdiction over a foreign state. That's governed solely by the FSIA. There's an argument. If that's that immunity is not abrogated with respect to execution, and the Investors Council points out that the limits of that abrogation imply that the immunity may well be abrogated, in their view, is abrogated with respect to, you know, recognition and enforcement. So I think both textually, that's a dramatic over-reading of the convention to take by negative implication that the parties meant to waive sovereign immunity. It certainly doesn't expressly preserve it, except with respect to execution. Well, I don't think it's consistent with Article 54 either, because the obligation to enforce an arbitration award as if it were a final judgment of the courts of constituent state envision enforcement under domestic law, which in this case incorporates 
you know, whatever you need to do to show that sovereign immunity doesn't apply. And I would also just point to the legislative history of 1605A, which was the implementing legislation. Obviously, um, the legislative history strongly suggests that it was understood that the convention was not waiving sovereign immunity. If you take a look at the Second Circuit's decision in Mobile Cerro Negro, it outlines that legislative history. But I also think it's, it's not the kind of clear statement we would expect to constitute a waiver of sovereign immunity from suit, certainly that would not be sufficient to waive U.S. sovereign immunity. Going back to the arbitration exception, what about uh, exit and the full faith and credit clause? You say in your brief that dismissing for lack of jurisdiction would not run afoul of the exit full faith and credit, credit obligation. But is that, I mean, doesn't the full faith and credit encompass or effectuate issue preclusion, claim preclusion, if there's a jurisdictional issue that was decided by so, the exit panel. Um, I think the court needs to have jurisdiction in order to exercise any power over a foreign state, right? The subject matter jurisdiction inquiry under the FSIA is a threshold question of this court's authority. And again, under ICSID Article 54, you know, our obligation is to enforce the arbitral award in the same way that we would enforce a judgment of a constituent state. And that too, under federal law, would require finding a plenary basis for jurisdiction under the FSIA at the threshold. Now on the merits, certainly the court would not be reconsidering, assuming it had jurisdiction to enforce, would not be reconsidering the merits of the arbitral award. But that is a different inquiry, I think, from the subject matter jurisdiction inquiry. So if an investor in Switzerland decided we are going to um, enter into an arbitration agreement and we are going to give the arbitrators the authority to decide whether we have agreed, whether we have an arbitration agreement, and then to decide under it. And the arbitrators say, yes, you have an agreement, and yes, you've decided under it. We as a U.S. court enforcing that against Switzerland could not credit the conclusion in that award as to the existence of an agreement. On the merits, certainly. But, but not as, but as conferring subject matter jurisdiction on this court, no. And I think that that follows necessarily from this court's prior decisions. In Belize itself, as I mentioned, arbitration took place under rules that gave the jurisdictional, gave the arbitral panel the authority to decide conclusively disputes about the existence and validity of and the agreement. And what about Chevron and Stickless? Well, I think there's this basic distinction that we've drawn between the existence of the agreement and questions about arbitrability. And we understand Chevron and Stilix to be based on that distinction. And finding the existence of agreement based on what? Well, I think independently examining, for example, in Belize, you know, the court looked to whether the governmental official, in fact, had authority to enter into a binding agreement to arbitrate. That's Belize, but but Chevron, Stickless, I mean, they're viewing, they're, where do you see them determining that there is an agreement to arbitrate? So in Chevron, the court held that the district court had in fact determined that there was an agreement to arbitrate. 
right? And 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 based on the treaty, right? That offered arbitration Correct. acceptance by the, the, the court. The district court had not understood itself to be making that determination as part of the jurisdictional inquiry, but it had in fact determined that there was a valid agreement. And in Stilex, the court simply decided that it was a question of the scope of the arbitration agreement. It wasn't a dispute about the existence of the arbitration agreement itself. Can you address the injunction, please? I'd like to, Your Honor. Um, I, I will say in the view of the United States, this is an extraordinary set of injunctions that Judge Chutkin entered. Uh, we are aware of no other instance in which a court has enjoined a foreign sovereign from pursuing litigation in a foreign court. Um, I want to turn, if I can, Judge Pan, to your earlier question about why this wasn't just like Lakers Airways. Because in the United States' view, what's relevant here is um, kind of the, the circumstances presented and the, and the real balancing of interests here that make clear what an extraordinary affront to international comedy this is. You know, in, in Laker Airways, it was injunction against a private entity, and I think that's extremely significant. Obviously, the affront to sovereign dignity is greatly heightened when you're talking about enjoining a foreign state itself. But in addition, the court in that case was applying, being asked to apply domestic substantive rules of decision to govern the conduct of entities operating in this country whose operations were alleged to be in violation of domestic law to the serious detriment of both the upper functioning of United States markets and U.S. consumers. Um, here, this is a far cry from that. The underlying arbitration here involves arbitration between a foreign state, a foreign national from an EU member country addressing questions of EU law. Uh, the United States here is acting solely as an enforcement arm of an arbitral tribunal. Um, and I, I would just add, you know, obviously we have grave concerns about uh, the propriety of coercive measures like injunctions against foreign states. The, the law of many foreign countries do not allow for such orders to be entered. Countries rightly think that it is a, viol a violation of their sovereignty and you know, obviously, we have concerns about the reciprocal treatment of the United States. Is, is it your position, though, that there's never a situation in which the United States would sanction or approve of an anti-suit injunction against a foreign sovereign? We have where, not, where do we draw that line? We have not taken the position that it would never be appropriate. I, I think the question has not been squarely presented, but certainly both in this case and in the BAE case we cite, uh, it was the government's view that injunctive relief would not have been appropriate. We don't think it was appropriate here. So if I could give you a hypothetical, we, we do have an amicus brief from a party called Mole Hungarian Oil. I don't know if you've read it, but it's supposed to illustrate the importance of the exit framework for ensuring that justice is done to investors when a nation decides they want to um, get out of a deal and assume this nation is doing it in bad faith because in this amicus brief, it recounts how Croatia took steps to get out of an investment agreement with Mole Hungarian Oil, which included relying on false information, criminally prosecuting and imprisoning one of the officers of the investor corporation. Um, and in spite of all that, however, um, Mole Hungarian Oil was able to get an arbitration award from the ICSID framework and neutral arbitrators 
found that Croatia was acting in bad faith, that these were false, these were lies, and awarded an arbitral award to Mole Hungarian Oil. And this is supposed to illustrate why ICSID is so important. So what if Croatia had sued Mole Hungarian Oil in Hungary to prevent that company from availing itself of the benefits of ICSID? Would comedy say we can't grant an anti-suit injunction under such a circumstance? So again, I, we're not taking any hard and fast position that it would never be appropriate. And of course, I can't speak to the veracity or propriety of the facts in that hypothetical. Let's assume that they're true. I'm just wondering I, if, if I, there is room for an anti-suit injunction under narrow circumstances where there's apparent bad faith or something that I would, indicates it would be an injustice. I would say... I think that the circumstances presented here are a far cry from circumstances that would demonstrate are bad faith. my hypothetical? Well, and I, I want to just point out something that I think is important. Even in BAE, you know, there you had the Korean government going into Korean courts seeking relief under their own law, you know, where you had every reason to think that that was a particularly favorable forum for the home country to be litigating in. I see Here, that's a different kind of case because those were sort of parallel proceedings. This is a suit to stop the U.S. proceedings. Well, and also in BAE, it looks like there was an injunction which was lifted. That I was reading that case this morning and it says there was an injunction entered which was lifted. The, the district court, ultimately, when it came before this court, there was no injunction in place. Correct, but earlier right. in that, the proceedings of that case you said there never has been. Well, one. it looks like there was one in that case. I, I, I misspoke, Your Honor. I, I think there's every reason to think that the EU courts where these proceedings are taking place would have no reason to be unduly favorable to Spain. Right. Spain has gone into the home court of the investor to try and get that court, which is under the EU rubric and framework to decide questions of EU law. I don't want to opine on what the motivations of the EU courts are or anything like that, but I, I thought that the whole reason for ICSID was to ensure that there would be a neutral arbiter, that investors don't have to go before, before national courts. They get to go before international arbiters. And the United States is a signatory to ICSID and has 150 cases out there with American investors availing themselves of ICSID. And doesn't the United States have an interest in making sure the ICSID framework doesn't collapse. Because if nation states can file suits to enjoin people from using ICSID, that's a threat to ICSID. And the United States is a member of ICSID and has an interest in making sure that doesn't happen. So again, Your Honor, it is true that the United States is a member of ICSID. I think that the United States' interest in acting purely as an enforcement court for an exit arbitral award is not the same kind of interest that this court had before it in Laker Airways, where even there, where the injunction ran purely against a private entity, the court recognized that it was an extraordinary circumstance, but that in that case in particular, the domestic forum's interest in adjudicating questions of U.S. law to apply to regulate conduct of companies doing business in this country and availing themselves of the legal protections in this country. I think but I that's guess my question is whether the United States' interest in upholding the ICSA framework is something similar or akin to, you know, 
this interest in U.S. law. I don't, we do not see the interest as the same. And I would point out that, you know, this is not merely a, a hypothetical circumstance in which uh, an injunction against litigation uh, could harm our foreign relations, but we have no reason to think that is manifest. What we have here are statements. I think it's what? It's not purely hypothetical that the injunctions here are harming our foreign relations and our relations with our international partners. You know, we have statements from the EU here about the interference with the resolution of complex questions of EU law that the injunctions pose. We have um, the European Union and uh, relevant foreign sovereigns have raised diplomatic concerns directly with the State Department. I think they all just reflect the significant affront to foreign relations that those injunctions have caused. Is there room for a very narrow um, path to upholding an injunction like this? Because these are very specific circumstances where the foreign case is one which is directly targeted at stopping jurisdiction in a U.S. court. It's not just like a parallel proceeding based on the same facts. The purpose of these suits brought by Spain is to stop the this ongoing legal proceeding in the United States. And it's under circumstances where these investors won't get to, I guess, have the benefits of ICSA or probably have their awards at all, because we know how the EU feels about these awards. Um, it just seems that it leaves the investors in a difficult place. It, it seems to me that in Laker um, Airways, we said that the test is we have to examine the equitable circumstances to determine if um, the antecedent injunction is required to prevent an irreparable miscarriage of justice. And I don't know how this all balances out because I do understand that this is different from Laker Airways because we're talking about a sovereign. And I just don't know, you know, how that all weighs. It just seems that there are also other circumstances here that aren't considered in Laker Airways. So I think it's not just that it's a foreign sovereign here that makes this case different from Laker Airways. I do think the nature of the domestic court's interest is reduced here. And I would just, if I can, Judge Pan, it is true that the European proceedings are intended to stop the domestic litigation, but it is routinely the case that at least the practical uh, effect that a foreign litigant who's litigating both in domestic courts and in some foreign proceeding is going to be to nullify the effect of the domestic judgment. That was true in BAE Airways, where Korea was looking for a Korean court adjudication that it would be able to recoup whatever payment. But those were just parallel proceedings, which is a little different but I think, in my eyes, where somebody's just trying to stop something from happening here. I, I think it is correct that the fact that a foreign proceeding is for the purpose of short-circuiting or stopping the domestic litigation in U.S. court is a relevant factor, but and I don't. Wasn't, didn't Spain behave with a lack of comedy by doing? I don't that? think it's a dispositive factor, Your Honor. And I, you know, I, I don't want to speak for Spain, but I would assume that Spain's view is that it has been forced into arbitration that it cannot validly agree to, and then put at risk of uh, facing awards that it can't comply with, consistent with EU law. But so, again, so your I, view is its interest. You know, it may be using this tool, but its interest is closer to the heart of at least what it perceives to be its sovereign prerogatives than the U.S.'s interest 
as an exit signatory in being a, a forum for enforcement. Correct, particularly when the underlying questions are one. Is not U.S. law, not U.S. parties. Not a treaty not to which US we are not. Yeah. not. If the court has no further questions. Thank you very much, and we appreciate your submitting a brief and appearing today at our invitation. And now we will hear from Mr. Dorotsky for Next Era and Nine Men. Good morning. Good morning. May it please the court. Um, I'd like to start with the ICSID issue. I was hoping that you were going to pronounce your name so that I could see that I pronounced it. No, you, you got it correctly. <laughs> um, I'd like to start, if I could, with the ICSID waiver issue, but in my time also, of course, address the arbitration exception as well. Um, ICSID is an extraordinarily broad convention. Spain's position in this case would effectively tear down the ICSID regime um, without regard for the U.S.'s own obligations under ICSID, which the United States recognized, for example, in its filing in the Second Circuit in the Mobile Cerro case. There's jurisdiction here under the waiver exception because by ratifying the ICSID convention, Spain waived immunity to ICSID award enforcement actions in member states' courts. It would create a circuit split with the Second Circuit in Blue Ridge to hold otherwise. It would also be at odds with the Australian High Court's decision, which followed Blue Ridge to hold otherwise. The ICSID convention is a unique treaty that governs disputes with foreign states and waives by its terms immunity to award enforcement in courts of member states. We get that first from the text. If you walk through the text of ICSID, Article 25.1 of ICSID talks about how the jurisdiction of the center shall extend to any legal dispute arising directly out of an investment between a contracting state and a national of another contracting state. So from the outset, ICSID is contemplating disputes against or involving contracting states. Article 41.1, again, a very broad provision, talks about how the tribunal shall be the judge of its own competence. And Article 41.2, that includes that any objection by a party to the dispute that the dispute is not within the jurisdiction of the center shall also be considered by the tribunal. So the tribunal decides its own jurisdiction that's delegated to the tribunal. Under so Article how about you respond, if you would, counsel, to the arguments that we heard this morning? Uh, because certainly through Judge Pan's question, you got the notion that the court uh, has been reading the plain language. Um, but we're told that there were a lot of understandings. There were a lot of assumptions. Um, everybody knew. And of course, now we have this more recent statement by um, what 26 sovereigns in the EU. What is going on here? Can you help us understand? Judge Rogers, I don't think that any of those arguments go to an understanding about ICSID. I don't think there is any argument that the terms of ICSID mean anything other than what they say, including that the award is going to be binding on the parties and that every contracting state has to recognize an award and treat it as if it were a final judgment of a court in that state. Correct. I think the but you heard counsel take us through articles saying that uh, there is language here that limits that understanding that uh, not only was commercial arbitration not at that point at that time, uh, but uh, the economic aspect of what's going on has changed dramatically since 
that period immediately after World War One. So your position is that those limiting articles need to be read how? So Judge Rogers, I think that those arguments go to the language of the ECT uh, rather than to the language of ICSID. Um, if the court would agreement to go into exit, and I think that's really where the action is, and it feels like the parties are sort of ships passing in the night on that. Um, so, so I don't think we're ships passing because I think there are two distinct grounds on which the district court had jurisdiction. The waiver exception doesn't require you to look at the ECT because the the waiver is by entering the exit convention. And the, re the reason that I was marching through the text of the ICSID convention is that I don't think there can be any dispute that that text waives immunity as to enforcement of ICSID awards, uh, including in, in the courts of any member state, which under 1650A includes courts of the United States. Then, then, arbitration exception. Then, then, then there's the arbitration exception. Um, under the arbitration exception, a few points on this. Um, first, this court's cases in Chevron and Stilex set forth the framework, and not just the framework, but in Stilex dealing with the ECT specifically for how to determine whether there's jurisdiction under the arbitration exception. Stilex tells us that producing copies of the ECT, the notices of arbitration, and the tribunal's decision show that the arbitration exception applies, and that's exactly what happened here. Stilex treated the ECT as the arbitration agreement because, tying this to the language of the FSIA, it is an agreement made by the foreign state, right, contracting parties to the ECT, with or for the benefit of private parties, which is, which is again, what we have here. The, the, the key, a key quote from, um, from Stilex is that Quote, the tribunal's jurisdictional grant derived from Moldova's signature on the treaty itself. That's treating the treaty itself as the relevant agreement. And under our law, it is up to the tribunal to determine what the treaty means. Spain's arguments, Judge Rogers, about what the, what the ECT means under that language in Stilex are for the tribunal. If you don't view the ECT as the relevant agreement, a sovereign could always frame every challenge as one of existence, saying, well, because the right kind of investor or investment wasn't involved, there was never an offer, there was never acceptance, there was never agreement. Stilex and Chevron reject that. In, the, in those cases, too, in Chevron, Ecuador said there was no agreement because the treaty's arbitration clause didn't apply to the investments. The court rejected that because that's an issue that was decided against Ecuador by the arbitrators. Within so, the scope, but so back to, to Stilex, you're reading, so you're reading the FSIA, I was just looking for that to put the language right in front of me, the parties to the relevant agreement to arbitrate end up being different from the parties to the dispute that's being arbitrated. If you just track through the FSIA's language, that does not bother you or how should we? I, I think that is the FSIA's language. The FSIA's language was contemplating investment treaties. Investment treaties are different in kind 
from ordinary commercial arbitration agreements where you have party A and party B signing an agreement. And then usually you're going to have party A and party B, the ones in arbitration. But even then you can have a third party that can sometimes force an arbitration agreement. Here in A6 of the FSIA, Congress is specifically contemplating this kind of agreement where you have an investment treaty among states for the benefit of private parties. When Congress added A6 to the statute, it was trying to expand the scope of enforceability of arbitral awards. And this is exactly the kind of agreement that it was contemplating. And again, Stoex and Chevron following BG Group treat the ECT, the investment treaty, as the relevant agreement. So you have an agreement to enforce an agreement made by the foreign state, Spain, for the benefit of a private party, investors such as your clients, to submit to arbitration all or any differences which have arisen or which may arise between the parties. So there the parties are not the parties to the agreement made by the foreign state because the parties to that are the other signatories of the ECT. But that doesn't bother you. I mean, the parties suddenly becomes the nation state and the third party beneficiary. No, because I don't think that private party at the beginning of that sentence is referring to the same parties as the ones who will be in the arbitration. Necessarily will be in the arbitration. I thought that was your position, that the benefit of a private party is the investor. And then it's a dispute that arises between the parties. And that is no longer the parties to the agreement made by the foreign state. Correct. It is now the parties to the differences which arise. Correct. So it's the same party plus the foreign state. Right. Awkward, that shift. I think it just reflects, and this court's decision in Chevron and Stoex do as well, the nature of an investment treaty where states are getting together to reach an agreement in order to ensure that the parties within those states have access to an arbitral forum. It seems to me that there are really two ways to look at whether there's an agreement to arbitrate. One is the way that Judge Pillard was just asking you about, which is just to look at the ECT and see that as an agreement among the contracting states to agree to unconditional arbitration for the benefit of private parties such as your client. And then the second way is to look at it the way we did in Chevron, which is to say there's an offer to arbitrate with any investors out there by Spain because they signed this treaty and it says I'm unconditionally agreeing to arbitrate. And then it's accepted when an investor files this notice of arbitration and then they get an award. And those are the three jurisdictional facts we need under the FSIA. Those seem to be two different ways to say that there is an agreement to arbitrate. I'm just wondering if one is better than the other or if there's a preference as to which is more persuasive. So I think that there are two agreements to arbitrate that could be at issue, which I think is what your Honor's question is getting at. There is the ECT, which is an agreement to arbitrate for the benefit of a private party. Then there's the agreement that is formed when the notice is submitted. And then that's a further agreement between the private party and the state. What this court said in Chevron and Stoex is that consistent with the FSIA's plain language, that first agreement qualifies under the FSIA for purposes of establishing jurisdiction. And so that would be the relevant agreement to look at. And if that were not the relevant... The one among the states and the 
the one among the states, once you have, once you have the ECT, it's indisputable that the ECT exists. Spain signed on to it. That is the agreement that satisfies A6 and that establishes subject matter jurisdiction and that establishes the way some communities. Either could satisfy A6. Either of the two ways of looking at it. I was just going to say, well, you can answer that because I'm Well, I I think the the reason that the better way to look at it is that the ECT satisfies that agreement, is that the ECT satisfies the the requirement, is that otherwise, if you look at a case like Chevron or Stilex, where you have a state coming in and saying, yes, we agreed to arbitrate, but we didn't agree to arbitrate about this issue. The way that under Spain's argument that is always going to become a question for the court rather than a scope question. Because Spain's view of the world is, Spain's view of the world is, because we didn't agree to arbitrate about X, we never made an offer to arbitrate about X, and no agreement was ever formed. But under that, Chevron, didn't we decide that that's just a question of arbitrability? Yes, preci- precisely. You, you, that is a question of arbitrability. It's a question of scope for the arbitrator. Yeah. And, and that's precise, and, that, and it, the court did that in Chevron because it viewed the ECT as the relevant agreement. But what's, I'm sorry. No, your no, sentence, no, 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 please. That's okay. But don't you have the same problem if you go back, you know, one one step earlier as as you're doing and saying the ECT um, is itself an an agreement to resolve disputes by arbitration? You disavow that it's an agreement between Spain and and your clients because your clients weren't parties to it. It's more it's but but it is an agreement to resolve disputes by arbitration. But Spain would come back and say, yes, but it's only an agreement by EU member states to resolve disputes by arbitration with investors from outside the EU. So the very same problem of well, what's the scope of, you know, Ecuador's offer to arbitrate arises with respect to the interpretation of the meaning of the ECT. And their view is that has to be decided by us. It's our it's our jurisdiction. How do we resolve that? But Judge Pillard, it is the same sort of question about scope as the one that Ecuador raised. And this court in Chevron and in Stilex decided that that was a question about scope for the arbitrator. I've done that under theorize, and I would love your help to bolster what we are bound by on that point. Because if the nature of the treaty itself is, yes, Spain's a signatory, but Spain is a signatory to a treaty that, with respect to Spain, only allows non-EU investors to accept its offer to arbitrate. That's their understanding, and that's actually the dominant uh, European court understanding. How does it get, get you an agreement to arbitrate? How does it transform a formation question into a scope question through the magic of adding exit and stirring? Uh, so I think there's, there's no question that the ECT is an offer to arbitrate. Um, if you had a Japanese investor come in, there's no question that they could accept the offer to arbitrate. The only argument that Spain is making is we need to construe the terms of this indisputably existing agreement. 
the meaning of this indisputably existing agreement, that takes us back to the quote that I that I read earlier from Stilex. Meaning of the treaty, once we agree that the treaty exists and that Spain has signed onto it, which is indisputable, the meaning of the treaty is a scope question. That's the logic of Stilex. That's equally true whether we're talking about the kind of investment or whether we're talking about, within the language of the ECT, what it means to be a contracting state. And the language of the ECT as to what it means to be a contracting state is clear and unambiguous. It, um, I mean, it, it, there's no limitation on the offer to arbitrate with, uh, with entities that are organized in accordance with the law applicable to contracting parties. Except to Spain's view, the limit that is the instinct in the entire nature of the capacity of EU and EU states to, to join such a treaty, which is, well, of course, primacy of EU law, of course, this doesn't speak to our in-house, internecine, inter-intra-EU. Isn't that Just, foreclosed by Stilex? Well, I, I think it's foreclosed by Stilex. I also think it's at odds with the Vienna Convention and how international law fundamentally works. Under Article 6 of the Vienna Convention, there's no question that Spain has the capacity to enter into to enter into a treaty. Um, Article, uh, sorry, there, there's no there, under Article Six. There's no question that Spain has the capacity to enter into a treaty. What Spain is doing is it's claiming to discover decades later that as a result of internal EU law, there was actually some prohibition on doing that. Under Article 46 of the Vienna Convention, a state can't use internal law in order to escape its international obligations unless the limitation was manifest and goes to a question of fundamental importance of that state's law. What's the source source for that? um, that, That's the Vienna Vienna Convention, Article 46. And and that is their view. I mean, they, Ms. Harris, I think quite clearly is saying, oh, yeah, manifest and of fundamental importance the whole time. You may have overlooked it, but in their, that has to, I think, be their view. And I guess one question is, can that change? Could that now be the case going forward? Um, I, I don't I know. It wouldn't affect your client. I, I don't think it can because the Vienna Convention talks in the past tense about what was manifest. And I, But let's say you're a new investor today. Would you be on notice given... The much more vocal. I, I, no, I, I, I still, I still don't think you would, because what Spain is effectively doing is trying to get out of the ECT or to amend the ECT without going through the procedures that the treaty itself provides for doing that. You simply can't do that as a matter of internal law. To, to, <laughs> well, you're characterizing get, it as akin to domestic law. They're characterizing it as akin to, you know, international law and the plane of the Vienna Convention itself. Isn't it somewhere in between? And if we can, if we can um, synthesize the EU law and the Vienna Convention and the ECT, to what in the Vienna Convention does what is what is uh, not respected by reading the EU law? as a species of international law and as having the effect on the ECT that so to, that to, Spain says. I mean, who else does it affect? This is a this is Europe's however benighted way of running its own affairs. 
So there's a lot packed into that. So it's okay. Let me try to make three points. One, under the Vienna Convention, Article 31.1, treaties are contracts. They're construed in accordance with their ordinary meaning. When you look at the ordinary meaning of Article 26.3, it talks about how each contracting party, Spain is a contracting party, each contracting party hereby gives its unconditional consent to the submission of a dispute and so forth. There's simply no other way to read that language other than as Spain consented. That Spain's argument that decades later this limitation was discovered doesn't come close to manifestly showing that that language means something other than what it says. What law? What law are we applying to decide the contract question? In your view, um, choice of law question. Well, I think in terms of the. Reading the contract, um, I don't know that there is a, I think you're just reading the contract according to its ordinary terms. I don't know that there's a, I don't know that EU law can read each contracting party to mean something other than each contracting party. Um, Vienna, Vienna Convention 31.1 says you, you just interpret language, you interpret contracts according to their, interpret treaties, that is, according to their ordinary meaning. With respect to the role that EU law plays in the context of international law. Um, there are numerous arbitration decisions by respected arbitrators and scholars that have all but uniformly rejected Spain's argument about the role of EU law relative to the ECT. I would point the court to Professor George Berman's declaration in our record, um, in the Next Era record, which quotes a number of these arbitral decisions and explains Within the system of international law, EU law doesn't have supremacy. It doesn't have hierarchical priority over the laws of non-member states or over rules of international law. The, e the EC itself, in its, in its amicus brief, describes EU law as being akin to federal law that preempts state law within the United States. EU law doesn't dictate the meaning of the ECT as to non-EU members. So this plain language of the ECT, when we're talking about how each contracting party consents, that doesn't mean one thing when Japan looks at the ECT and another thing when Spain or an EU member looks at the ECT. The EU law doesn't dictate the meaning of this agreement for non-EU members. It, it is a kind of international law in the sense that it governs relations among sovereign states within Europe. But it is not international law on the same plane as the general international law that governs the interpretation of the ECT for all signatories to the to the Energy Charter Treaty. I'm not so, sure I'm entirely convinced that it has to mean the exact same thing for EU investors as for the Japanese investor, given that the two can coexist. Nobody's going to be subject to... Um, confusing or conflicting obligations in that. Well, but, but I think, uh, but I, I think the problem is that with these multilateral treaties, whether we're talking about the ECT or whether we're talking about ICSID, every signatory state has an interest in ensuring that other signatory states uphold their obligations as to everybody. That's why for ICSID, Congress consistent with the United States' obligations under that convention passed 1650A so that federal district courts have an obligation to enforce ICSID awards. And that's true whether the ICSID award is held by a U.S. investor or by a foreign investor. 
all countries that are signatories to these treaties have an interest in ensuring that other countries honor them. And so, yes, Japan does have an interest in ensuring that the ECT means the same thing for a Japanese investor as for a Dutch investor. Does it? If all the, if all the investors in Europe said, oh, we, we can't take advantage of that, we'll just live without it. And Japan is like, well, we're going to take advantage of it. And like the world would go on. There's nothing. Well, if the investors in Europe don't want to take advantage of it, they don't have to accept the offer and arbitrate. They can go to court if they choose to. And sure, right. Japan, Japan. And if they're told like EU law, we're going to fine you if you do it, or we're going to shun you if you do it or whatever that doesn't work through the ECT. I'm just not sure that that I see the uniformity point, but I take it and I don't want to I don't want to dwell on that. Can you address the, the full faith and credit uh, obligation? Um, you don't mention it when you're analyzing the arbitration exception. Um, is, is that the instrument by which the jurisdictional determination of the exit tribunal uh, comes into our case and, and binds this court? So I think that's what this court recently said in Valores, um, that 22 U.S.C. 1650A requires a U.S. court to give full faith and credit, quote, even as to questions of jurisdiction, end quote. Um, and that's exactly what we have here. Spain pressed the very same arguments about intra-EU law to the tribunals and to the annulment committees in both, both of our cases. And the, under the, under the ICSID convention, those arguments were considered and rejected. The whole point of the ICSID convention is that when that happens, the role of a, a member state's court is just to ensure the authenticity of the award and then to, to enforce the award. Again, that, that was this court's decision in Valores. Um, so and there's a waiver as to enforcement in exit. There's not as to, I'm, I'm now switching back to waiver, sure. but there's not as to execution. So what's, what happens next if we were to uh, affirm the district court? Um, so as to execution, the FSIA's rules about execution in 28 U.S.C. 1609 and 1610 would apply. Um, so it, it's true. It, ICSID does not waive the exit convention does not waive sovereign immunity as to execution. Instead, it says that um, the, the country in which the award is enforced, its rules about execution will apply. And that is supplied, again, by 1609 and 1610 of the FSIA. Uh, and there are various exceptions to sovereign immunity that we would be able to satisfy under the FSIA as to execution. And... The I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, the injunction, um, and I wonder what you think is the U.S. national interest that's promoted here by the uh, enjoining the proceedings in Europe. Um, sure. So it's, it's two interests. One is the district court's interest in protecting its own jurisdiction. Congress enacted 1650A. That requires district courts to enforce exit awards. Um, Spain's tactic here was to try to defeat the district court's jurisdiction by bringing suit in the Dutch and Luxembourgish courts. And so the, the one interest is in protecting federal district court jurisdiction. The other is it, the injunctions were necessary to uphold the United States obligations under the exit convention and under 1650A. 
Article 54.1 of the ICSID Convention says that a court must recognize an ICSID award as binding as if it were a final judgment of a court in that state. 1650A implements that in the U.S. as a statutory matter. Again, every signatory nation that signed on to the ICSID Convention took on an obligation to ensure that those awards are enforceable because that's really essential for the system to function. But we would be, I mean, Judge Chuckin enforced. If there were no injunction, she would still have enforced. She would have done her duty under ICSID. And the rest is beyond what, I mean, ICSID doesn't have a requirement of enjoining other countries, other signatories, courts. The jurisdiction in this case would be, have been exercised. Well, Judge Chuckin, I think, needed to enter that injunction because Spain initiated these actions in the Netherlands and Luxembourg in order to terminate the district court proceedings and prevent Judge Chuckin from enforcing. They're seeking extraordinarily high monetary penalties against Nextera and against NINREN for every day that they don't comply with a European court injunction to dismiss the U.S. Act. So the whole point of these European actions was actually to prevent Judge Chuckin from ever getting to the point where she could enforce. So if the anti-student cases went forward in the Netherlands and Luxembourg, anything still pending here would be suspended and stopped if it prevailed, including an appeal, including any attempt to, I guess, execute a judgment. Correct, because the relief sought there. And again, Judge Chuckin did not enjoin the entire proceedings in the European courts. She allowed some aspect of those to proceed, and that was showing comedy to Spain and to the European courts. But she narrowly entered an injunction that prevented that relief in the European courts that would have interfered with U.S. jurisdiction and prevented the suits from going forward. So what's allowed to proceed under her injunction? Declaratory relief, a determination about the state aid issue. She didn't enjoin those things from proceeding because those were not directly stopping the U.S. action. But as this court recognized in Laker Airways, and I know that Laker Airways didn't involve a foreign sovereign, it involved a private party, but it talked about the importance of comedy. And it said that comedy gives way when a foreign lawsuit, quote, is specifically intended to interfere with and terminate a U.S. lawsuit. That's precisely what we have here. Under ICSID, you know, because I think you're right that we do have an obligation under ICSID, but why isn't it correct to understand our obligation under ICSID to have our courthouse doors open to foreign investors seeking to enforce ICSID awards? What in ICSID requires us to read it as that our courts must remove overseas obstacles to make it easier for foreign investors to find their way into and effectively use our courts? It's not about making it easier, but Article 54.1 of ICSID says each contracting state shall recognize an award and enforce the pecuniary obligations imposed by that award within its territories as if it were a final judgment of a court in that state. It's not just about making the U.S. courts open. It's that if the U.S. courts are asked to enforce, each contracting state shall do that, shall enforce. It's a little bit challenging. I mean, and this is always the case with international transactions and litigation. 
if the government of some country said its investors come and try to enforce an exit award in the United States, and the dictator of that country says to the investor, if you keep doing that case, we're going to start killing your nieces and nephews and we'll come for you next. Does the U.S. court have to get involved in ensuring that that doesn't happen? Well, I don't know that. Unfortunately, I don't know that there's much that a U.S. court could do in that situation to prevent the killings. But it's someone else's lawlessness on their own territory with respect to their own national businesses. I'm not sure that I see that as running afoul of our exit obligation. I think it is a different situation where we are talking about enjoining litigation as opposed to trying to stop a killing spree. Or to threaten people because they're doing litigation. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear that the idea is unless you draw out of that litigation, we are going to threaten you or take away your business license or all kinds of other activities. And what I'm doing is trying crudely to test how much responsibility to protect our open courthouse doors we have that would involve reaching overseas into sovereign territory and sovereign function or dysfunction of other countries. So I think the limits of the U.S.'s responsibility would probably be tied to the inherent authority of a court. A court doesn't have inherent authority to prevent the dictator in some other country from engaging in the tactics that you're suggesting. I suppose you could enter an injunction. It would be completely meaningless. A court does have the inherent authority to enjoin litigation in this way. That's what Laker Airways recognized. And so then the only question is, is it any different in this case that instead of enjoining a private party, we're enjoining a sovereign? Doesn't Laker Airways also talk about a miscarriage of justice? Like is that a standard, an irreparable miscarriage of justice? And I don't know that this necessarily falls within – the situation before us might not necessarily fall within a miscarriage of justice such as a dictator killing people's children. But it just seems that if you play this out, it seems that the result of the EU cases seems likely to be that – because I guess all the EU countries have adopted the ACMEA and Comstroy reasoning that they would grant an anti-suit injunction to Spain and the investors would just not be able to collect on these awards that they have won going through this arbitral process before experts in international law. Because my understanding is that the arbitrators through ICSID are experts and they're also people who are placed in the pool by the member countries, including Spain. And it just seems that it would be unjust. I don't know if it's the kind of injustice that outweighs comedy. But it just seems that if we believed that the investors had the correct reading of ICSID and they just wouldn't be able to proceed and it would be an injustice. I just don't know if that outweighs comedy interest. So I think it does outweigh comedy interest for two reasons. One is the reason that the Laker Airways court itself gave, which is that comedy gives way when you're talking about a foreign proceeding that's specifically interfering with U.S. litigation. The other – just to step back a minute. We have Spain coming in here talking about comedy. 
Laker Airways describes comedy as the mortar that holds together the bricks of the international system. What's corrosive to the international system is to have Spain come in and say that it doesn't need to honor its obligations under the ICSID convention and under the ECT. And then Spain is arguing that the Department of Justice on behalf of the United States basically say to us, when a sovereign is involved, we're talking about an international treaty, is a political question. And it's the United States position that this is going to harm the United States interests. And that's not something for the courts to inquire into, where it's just a commercial operation as Lakers Airways. You know, it's only money. Um, It's a different calculus. And I'm concerned, how would you respond? I mean, Council had the opportunity this morning to talk about political questions. She didn't. But it seems to me that's the thrust of what happens when you have a sovereign, an international treaty, and the United States is concerned about its own interests being adversely affected were the court to issue an injunction. Judge Rogers, I I don't think that it's a political question. I think it's a question that is governed by Section 1606 of the FSIA. Under Section 1606 of the FSIA, um, foreign states that aren't immune, and if we're talking about the injunctions, we're talking about that because we've already concluded that Spain is not immune under either the arbitration exception or the waiver exception. Foreign states that aren't immune shall be treated in the same manner as a private individual under like circumstances. A district court could have enjoined a private party in like circumstances. That's precisely the Laker Airways case. Section 1606. I mean, all I'm trying to get is somebody to recognize that, you know, we can talk about injustice, et cetera, and who's really right in this litigation. But I just wonder once you get the United States and you get foreign governments complaining to our government, doesn't the whole nature of the controversy, if it doesn't change, it certainly is different. I understand why it feels different. I don't think that it is different because because under 1606, once there's no immunity, Spain is treated like a private party. And I understand, of course, that Spain and other members of the European Union um, are, are here arguing that they shouldn't be bound by the language that they agreed to in ICSID and the ECT. The Australian High Court um, was not moved by that when it followed Blue Ridge and recognized that the ICSID convention was a waiver. And actually, under that court's law, it had to be an express waiver. And the Australian High Court found that joining the ICSID convention satisfied even that standard. And so I understand why it feels different, but I don't think that it is different as a legal matter, Judge Rogers. All right. Thank you. And the other question I have is, and this goes beyond um, any obligations you have in terms of uh, the client that you're representing now, but I just wonder from your practice, why has the high court for the European Union not been, in my view, clear about this? in terms of the position it's now presenting to this court in terms of 
what the ETC, what the EU intended when it joined the ATC, um, ECT, and why that makes a difference here. In other words, there was a, a, a sentence thrown out to the effect that, well, until you know, 2000, et cetera, um, this type of commercial litigation wasn't very um, active in Europe. Is that right? Um, I, so I, I don't know as a factual matter, because my practice is as an appellate lawyer, not an international arbitration lawyer. So I don't know the answer to that as yeah. a factual matter. But what I can tell you, again, just going back to the Vienna Convention, Article 46, is yeah. that these sorts of late discovered, late, too late discovered understandings of plain language of treaties, that may create an issue for Spain within the EU. It does not absolve Spain of its responsibilities under the treaty. Um, any more than, to give an example, the United States has been a member of NATO for 75 years. We're obligated to defend foreign countries if they're attacked. If a court in the US discovered 75 years later Actually, maybe there's a constitutional problem with spending U.S. taxpayer dollars to defend foreign states. No one would think that gets you out of NATO. That's an internal problem for the U.S. The EU, decades later, has come up with an objection that they say um, prevents them from arbitrating under the plain terms that they agreed to. And as a matter, there's no comedy obstacle or other obstacle to holding them to those terms. I have just a few more questions about the injunction situation. I, I take it, I mean, you haven't cited any other cases from a federal court of appeals affirming an anti-suit injunction against a foreign sovereign. They're just, there aren't yet. No, there, there, are, there are other cases where courts, including this court, have upheld <laughs> injunctions against foreign sovereigns in other contexts, but not this kind of anti-anti-suit uh, injunction. But that's also because we're not aware of any case where a foreign sovereign has tried this tactic. Right. And, and this, this would become a common tactic if the injunction Understood. is not available. Practically speaking, I mean, this is a, a lot of money at stake in the award that you have, your clients have won. What, what effect would a foreign court injunction have? Wouldn't your clients just proceed and have to pay a certain amount of penalties, hoping that the district court would, would work quickly? The, the penalties are quite steep. Um, Relative to the amount of money that your award stands? Um, well, so for, first of all, I can't speak to how long it would actually take to go back to the district court, conclude proceedings, and ultimately enforce these awards, during which time these penalties would be mounting. But regardless, um, the penalties provide, at the very least, a strong incentive for our clients not to pursue the U.S. actions, which, again, is an interference under Laker Airways with U.S. court's jurisdiction, which, as we discussed, have the obligation to enforce. And if, if you, I mean, one way or the other, assume that the Dutch courts are planning uh, or might at least think they have the capacity to seek to claw back whatever you've gained here. I mean, in the end of the day, there's going to have to be some kind of resolution of those those cases. Um, 
after the award is paid, if there were some sort of a proceeding later to try to claw it back, that's something we would have to deal with at that time. But that is separate from that. That would be playing out the internal EU law issue as a matter of a matter of EU law. But that's that's a separate question from the U.S.'s obligation to enforce the exit. And my only other question is that exit itself has this Article 64, which empowers a contracting party, including the United States, to refer another contracting party to the ICJ. So if the executive branch here is concerned that Spain or Luxembourg is violating the convention or Dutch courts, you know, violating the convention by trying to stop the enforcement of your client's award here, then couldn't the executive seek resolution in the ICJ? I think the problem is that the U.S. could be referred to the ICJ by another signatory state because it's not meeting its obligations. And again, the whole nature of this convention is that all 160 or so signatories have an interest in other signatory states recognizing and not second guessing and enforcing exit awards. And I think this court in Valores recognized that. Any more questions, Judge Rogers? No, thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Ms. Harris has reserved rebuttal time. Thank you. I would just like to go over the decision points because the position the investors would like to adopt would really be a sea change in all of those scores. First of all, with respect to the position that under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, you can just rubber stamp what the arbitrators have already said or treat Spain's argument that it lacks the power to arbitrate as a question for arbitrability that courts don't decide. That would be flatly contrary to the way this court reasoned in Belize, talking about the nature of challenges to the power of a foreign sovereign or its representative to actually agree. Would also run afoul of Stilex, a case that did not involve any EU parties and was just hewing to this court's line, saying questions with respect to someone had the power to agree to arbitrate formation, always for courts, regardless of a delegation clause. You're questioning whether an agreement that exists covers a subject matter, which is what happened in Stilex, because the question was whether it's a qualifying investment. That always goes to arbitrability. To adopt the investor's position would be to obliterate the clarity of that line and really throw under the wayside the court's decisions in Belize and in Mikula. And again, this argument that Spain has been making really does clearly go to formation. It is, again, the idea that Spain could not and did not ever agree under the Energy Charter Treaty. And second of all, were this court to say that the Energy Charter Treaty actually embodied this consent, a whole host of problems ensue. They point to not one case of a treaty in which a court has said the text is somehow clear, yet in contravention of what all the signatories on the record have ever said about it. Especially strange for a treaty the U.S. did not sign, and it would be a real upheaval for the way the actual parties to this treaty are actually operating. And then on the waiver exception, we agree with you. You said that's one decision point? Those were the two decision points I wanted to cover. And then the waiver point, we agree with the United States' perspective with respect to, again, an upheaval both with respect to 
the nature of how the arbitration exception works and the understanding of the treaties as not in of themselves uh, waivers. There are frameworks for considering arbitration that require consent. Thank you very much.